0: The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Friday, August 10th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, a tape emerged of discredited nincompoop Devin Nunes telling donors that if Republicans lose the House, don't worry, we'll try to impeach Rod Rosenstein during the lame duck session. He said some other things. There are lots of uh, scrapings of plates in the background kind of annoying. Commenting on this and on Nunes in general was Representative Hakeem Jeffries. He was on MSNBC and he used this phrase. The so-called chairman of the Intelligence Committee is a complete embarrassment. Apt but interesting because you could take that phrase, so-called chair of the House Intelligence Committee, and take out the so-called and put it before any other clause in the phrase. So one reason why so-called chairman of the Intel Committee works is that he's not really the chairman, or at least not all the time. He got hung out to dry by the ineffectual White House. He, was, he went to the White House to get some intel, and the intel was supposed to discredit an investigation into Carter Page. It wound up rebounding onto him. You know, big nightmare. So before Congress itself was going to recommend that Nunes be recused, he said, I'm going to voluntarily step aside. So he's not really the chairman all the time or even most of the time for the important things. That is why it is right to call him the so-called chairman. But of course, you could... Also call him the chairman of the so-called intelligence committee, because under Nunes and Trey Gowdy, this committee has not acted in the pursuit of intelligence, but in the pursuit of obfuscation. It hauled in Peter Strzok and it did the whole hashtag release the memos thing, which was also a discredited attempt to sully FISA warrants. Again, a huge embarrassment. But then you could take the so-called and put it at the end where it would read like this. The chairman of the intelligence Okay, the grammar's a little strained, but here's why it's not even a committee. It's not run as a committee. It's run as an organ for the Republicans on the committee. It's pretty much 100% partisan, and Nunes is constantly trying but failing to outmaneuver Democrat Adam Schiff. Now, in a way, Adam Schiff has the deck stacked against him, but in another way, would that we all had a nemesis as discredited and as much of an income poop as Devin Nunes. I also... If you want to be really picky, think the the is so-called because it's not really the Intelligence Committee. It's one of two Intelligence Committees. The other one, the Senate Intelligence Committee, and that does a much better job pursuing issues of intelligence. It does work as a committee and its Republican chair, Richard Burr, does his job credibly and without nincompoopery, it must be said. Devin Nunes discredited nincompoop, so-called by me often and accurately. On the show today, I spiel about why not. Let's get into another of these characters in the unsavory kakistocracy. It's Omarosa. Yes, she changed her tune a little bit, but once a kakistocrat, always a kakistocrat. But first, he's 50% of the Venture Bros, an adult swim show as crazy and daring as any show out there. You have never seen a show where the creators are less afraid of losing the audience. It's kind of fun. Jackson Public joins us On the gist of Calamitous Intent. So here's how things work around the gist. I got a couple producers, they're different stripes of comic book nerds. But I was talking about, I think, Ant-Man and the Wasp. I had just taken my son. And there were some, let us say, flaws or logical inconsistencies. Uh And uh, I had looked up Ant-Man and the Wasp and this brought me to the Fantastic Four. And someone had issued a compendium of all the things, all the traits that if superheroes had in real life, they'd either die or kill everyone else. And Pierre and Daniel just kept saying, oh yeah, that was Inventure Brothers. (laughs) Oh yeah, that was Inventure Brothers. And oh yeah, the Human Torch is Inventure Brothers. And I said- what the hell is Venture Brothers? Because I'm a little bit older and not as cool. And then, so this is Ant-Man and the Wasp. This came out a few weeks ago. I did this deep dive into Venture Brothers, and I was blown away by the depth, the universe building, and just the execution of this show that is it eh, builds itself as a take on Johnny Quest, but it's a lot more than that. Jackson Public is the man, one of the two creators of the Venture Brothers. He writes... Just about every episode with his co-creator, and season seven is up now. Is it the longest running show on The Adult Swim? I think it is. Yeah. But it's like a huge cheat because <laughs> yes. it's seven seasons in 14 years. Every other show on TV will say, we're on season 14, and then you're like, wait, you just started three years ago. They do like three seasons a I know, year. Yeah. You've gone the opposite direction. Yeah. 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 So this was... Originally conceived of or pitched as more a spot on, I don't know parody, but take on Johnny Quest is that is that the idea? Or is that just how it was kind of like marketed and sold to us? Yeah, because that's a, that's a that's a big seller, right? Yeah, going, oh, hey, everyone loves the Johnny hey, Quest. Hey, remember not Johnny Quest? No. All right. Well, it was this thing, right? And <laughs> yeah, well, how about uh, Captain Caveman? Also, no. <laughs> then that. <laughs>
1: You know that was like that was the template, but it was always our own thing. You know, we were never out to go. Okay, what episode of Johnny Quest do we want to parody this week? I mean, although we did do a pretty deep dive yeah. for just dumb ideas. You know, like we we love just watching crappy things together and riffing on them while we're watching and going, okay, that's there's a trope we can hit. But it was, yeah, it was never intended to be like a, a perfect analog or or a, or a, a constant spoof of that. It was just a way into. Uh, a world because i I, uh, johnny quest just stuck in my head for how it looked and for this kind of non-existent genre that Mm -hmm. it was a part of it was like it was part of this great like you know space race era um thing where they were like mashing up obviously like some james bond crap and some like doc savage stuff and you know it was espionage and adventure with this like atomic sci-fi kind of element to but it but also a like, teenage that's...
0: kid and also yeah yeah seek like scientist involved yeah. <laughs> what's going on
1: no he was just a magic boy that oh, they adopted I see. I see. as as, yeah. as
0: as it happens yeah
1: yeah and the, yeah this this sort of cavalier white men you know traipsing through other countries to go like i'll take that
0: boy home right. <laughs> yeah. it was it was interesting now that you mention it it was one of those things like nothing else on tv but usually we compliment it with that phrase yeah this was like i could see why there's nothing else on tv like this it really doesn't make (laughs) that much sense
1: but yeah i mean it's got you know it had one toe in all these different genres and that's what was cool to me you know i had done a lot of like superhero type stuff before that and it was oh there is room for superheroes in this world and you know
0: so how soon did you start getting all the different genres but you know other than quest in there. You have your super friends and you have your a lot of your Marvel characters. What is the process for inserting those ideas into the series? Yeah. I it just
1: happens naturally. I mean, I guess right out of the gate because I mean, even even in the pilot there was a, you know, a, a Mr. Fantastic type of guy walking around.
0: So, did you think a lot? Were you as a person who got his start in comics and loved comics? Did you think about the But did you think more of the logical flaws of the characters, what the characters really would be like in the real world, or more, let's mine these comic characters for comic possibilities? How'd you think about it? Yeah, I
1: I think my M.O. at the beginning would be like, okay, what what kind of torment would this power or this experience be like in real life? And that's inherently funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's I think that's what I started with when we did the Impossible Family who were the Fantastic Four it was like oh if you were on fire all the time it would be incredibly painful it and, was. and if you were the thing you you were like a big chaos that would be painful too you know and the uh, the invisible girl we just made her not quite get invisible and that was gross and, you know
0: <laughs> Yeah well if you <laughs> and, really- well
1: and she's the I her no her her cross the bear was that she is the wife of this disinterested uh
0: Scientist, dude, you know. So her invisibility made plain, really. Yeah. It's really a comment on invisibility. Is there ever a note on your show? I don't know who would give notes. You give a note to Doc or someone gives you a note mm. that you're losing the audience. Cause I don't sense <laughs> that you ever worry that you're losing the audience. <laughs> we, uh,
1: we, we haven't gotten a note from the network other than please bleep the F word or, you know, hey, you can't show that because we'll get sued. Uh huh. Since the, like first script of season two or something. They just kind of trust us once in a while. You know, I'll have a phone call with Mike Lazo and he'll, he'll be like, you're getting a little too deep into your you know, own asses. And like, you're just, this is show is impenetrable yeah. to, um, you know, new viewers. And like, we, we try to think about that or, or, or whatever,
0: but that could be I've depth never, about what you've established yeah. already, as opposed to pulling a reference. I, I yeah, just, yeah. See, as yeah. far
1: as like, you know, one-off jokes, nobody, Nobody gives us a hard time. Sometimes Doc and I make fun of each other for our little references, but like we've learned that if something is funny to us, if something is a personal connection we've made with something, somebody else out there gets it. Yeah. And everybody has Wikipedia now anyway. So like either either you won't get it and you'll think we came up with this new character who's interesting or you will get it and go, ah, they wrote that joke just for me. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why we have a really, really devoted fan base, because there's a lot of stuff in it that you go that there's no way that joke wasn't just for me. You know,
0: it's with the kind of show that you laugh at, but you also marvel at no pun, no comic book pun intended (laughs) where you go, oh, my God, they noticed that, too. (laughs) They they noticed they noticed that member of the Legion of Doom had that quirk as I did. What's the most? Can you remember a thing that you and Doc maybe thought would be really obscure that people got like that? I mean, he made like a Steve Bader's reference like early on, and you know, um,
1: the stuff like that. Just, I don't like, even just, know
0: who Steve Bader's is. You know, a comic book. Artist. Look him up.
1: No, no, no. That's like punk stuff. Oh, god. Um, okay. Because we'll yeah, we'll pull stuff from all over the place, and and um, you know, <laughs> I I think uh, when we first wrote this one episode with like flashbacks to. Um, the sort of uh, proto guild of calamitous intent like 120 years ago or something yeah. doc's first draft had really peopled it with uh very obscure like painters and and occultists and stuff that he knew because he was like super into the gilded age and, and stuff like that I was like, so
0: it's like from the 1890s yeah, yeah yeah and i was like oh
1: you gotta throw them a couple of bo- like please put like make half of them that but like hey, put mark twain in there yeah, yeah. you know like come on, like jules verne maybe? Yeah. yeah people yeah. i don't want you to you know pander i, <laughs> I love that we think that's pandering <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> but um you know mark twain had every right to be there he was really chummy with tesla you know so it, it worked
0: <laughs> and what is something that you thought that okay this isn't even an obscure reference that maybe lost people mm. or lost people and i don't know if this happened but Maybe you went back and said, ah, I understand why this was confusing. And it wasn't confusing to you two guys, but you, when it went out into the world, people didn't get exactly what you were trying to do.
1: I think our, our season four premiere was ridiculous. I mean, that was just a, a really strangely constructed episode that like the last time I watched it, I'm like, my God, what were we thinking? And it seemed like, what's
0: wrong with us? Yeah. Yeah.
1: It (laughs) seemed like such a fun, weird idea at the time. And we knew it was strange. It was like it was all told out of order. Mm-hmm. There were kind of two halves to it. One half was moving forward in time chronologically, and yeah. the other half every scene was a flashback moving backwards. Oh, okay. So that the first and last scenes of the episode were next to each other. So, so you so, did
0: disjoint to time, but also and, and the, the, goes rhinoceros. Yeah. <laughs> you did you did both at once. <laughs> Can, Can that just, be done? And then like
1: the only the only marker you had to tell what time was was the value of a comic book like going down or up like where we put the like the i was deep nerd crap and uh so it was really confusing and to make matters worse uh at least on the west coast feed i think <laughs> when we premiered adult swim accidentally showed the first act twice <laughs> so people out there like came back from commercial and they're seeing the first act again and wondering if we're doing A thing where like oh i have to watch it really carefully and see what's different this time and uh,
0: (laughs) there's definitely someone out there with the review i totally get it (laughs) these guys are geniuses yeah Yeah. it's
1: the worst episode you could make that mistake with. oh my god Uh, that's awesome and it you know in retrospect i don't know if we would be that obtuse ever again but it was i like that we did it i i like that we have learned on the job and we've Made some mistakes, and we just
0: try. And at this rate, season eight is around twenty, twenty-two. That'll Aww. hit. <laughs> there's usually <laughs> sometimes there's a year gap, and sometimes there's two year gap. Yeah, but then sometimes a I season think the last two years. I think the. I mean, it from if if I had
1: all the scripts done for this season already, which w- for season eight, which we haven't started writing yet. Wow, uh, it would still take like just the animation production itself. If we started tomorrow. Takes something like fourteen, fifteen months. So, like, there's no way to do it in a year for us, anyway. Yeah, you know.
0: Well, that's good. Does Ur- it, has currently, <laughs> it, has the culture ever gone too fast for you? Probably. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, we we we're not you know, terribly uh, you know present day pop no. cultural. No, re- there are re- no Trump them.
0: jokes in there specifically.
1: No, I mean, we we accidentally made one <laughs> last season. right? Because yeah, because yeah, when we started. When we started season six, you know, we moved them to New York and they, I decided to place their new headquarters on Columbus Circle right across the street is one of the Trump Towers. So we made that, we made that into Toffit Tower, which is, you know, luxury condos that most of the supervillains live in, um, and so we had like you know we had like a party scene, and I wanted you know rich New York luminaries in the background. Uh, and so we you know we have we have like a Trump guy as a, just a background filler character. Then he ran for freaking president like like before we were done. And I I almost want I then I regretted it because I'm like no the last thing I want to do is make a Trump joke in my show. I he doesn't deserve to be in my show. <laughs> um, And I did actually, like, we weren't done producing the season. I did take him out of a later crowd scene because I was like, no, I'm not putting his damn face on my show. Screw him. He doesn't deserve
0: it. Venture Brothers. (laughs) Another another example of the resistance right there (laughs) at midnight on Adult Swim. Jackson Public is the co-creator, really 50% of it, along with Doc Hammer. Jackson, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. And now the spiel. I've been consuming Omarosa's new book. I've just been devouring it. Her descriptions of life in the White House are just delicious. She has got a flair for the spicy detail, which wets my appetite for more dish. Okay, you heard what I was doing there, right? That's a big part of the new tell-all but probably lie some, by Omarosa Manigault Newman. And this part has captured everyone's attention. So she does say there is tape of the president mentioning the most verboten word in the language. We'll get to that. But she also says that she walked in on the president and witnessed him eating a piece of paper. Yes, it is the first ever accusation of presidential bibliophagy possibly bibliophagy, depending on how you pronounce it. Sure, FDR vowed if he were president at the time, he would have eaten Smoot-Hawley, but that was just a hypothetical. I know President Trump has been trying to shit all over the Constitution. I didn't know that process began internally. You've heard of the pocket veto? This is the esophageal veto. Mr. President, Mr. President, I told you your third version of the travel ban was a wonderful edict. I didn't say it was wonderful. Eat it. Look, I don't believe any of this happened, or I really don't know what to believe. I'm not even sure I care that much because Omarosa. There was this series of bold, if true statements, uh, as reported by the New York Times, describing things in her book, and they built and built into the worst anticlimax since the betting of Stormy Daniels. Here, I'll read this part. Ms. Manigault Newman also claims that Mr. Trump's daughter-in-law tried to buy her silence by offering a $15,000 a month contract. Hmm. That the president secreted a tanning bed into the White House residence. Oh. That Mr. Trump described his education secretary, Betsy DeVos, as ditzy. Yeah. That he once chewed up a piece of paper to avoid having it collected by presidential record keepers. Weird. Weird. And that he routinely comments on women's looks. You don't say. That's a little like parsley as the dessert. By Omarosa's own recognition, she, an African-American woman, knew about Donald Trump using the N-word. In the book, she says she heard about a tape that existed. Today, on an NPR interview, she said she actually heard the tape because, you know, that's how books work. You contradict them during your first big interview trying to promote them. Always a great sign. But in either case, she knowingly signed on to work for the campaign of a man who she knew used the N-word. And she repeatedly went on TV and said things like this in defense of her N-word spewing boss. So I'll play this defense. Uh, the issue at the time was Trump was saying that there was a judge who would not treat him fairly because the judge was of Mexican heritage this is from a Fox interview.
1: Well, I'm going to take him at his word.
0: Oh, uh, which word is that Omarosa? Sorry, I interrupted.
1: Particularly him saying that these comments were misconstrued. And I also think it's important that I know him personally, and he certainly is not a racist. He doesn't have issues with people of color.
0: By the time Omarosa was fired, she describes her mindset as a, quote, growing realization that Donald Trump was indeed a racist, a bigot, and a misogynist. I had done the hard work. I had done the deep investigation, the careful vetting. It was hard to pick through the forest of misogyny to see the racism. The smokescreen of prejudice masked the truth of bigotry. The naked and bold pronouncements of anti-Muslim, anti-Latino, anti-Asian, anti-African-American, anti-non-Norwegian country sentiment had blinded me to the fact that he was not as progressive on issues of identity that I had hoped he would be. Now, to be fair to myself, I was distracted along the way by his brilliant and persuasive director of African-American outreach. She was beautiful. She was well-reasoned. Let us remember this thing that she once said.
1: Well, I'm going to take him at his word.
0: So, yes, I admit all that got in the way of this nagging feeling I had in the back of my head that the man who said immigrants from Haiti, quote, all have AIDS, might not be speaking just out of a knowledge of communicable diseases. And perhaps he might have better addressed the 1,400 people in Puerto Rico who were killed by Hurricane Maria, might have addressed them better than just by tossing paper towels into a crowd and calling them, quote, politically motivated ingrates. My suspicion was growing. And then there was one more thing, pardoning Joe Arpaio and also disavowing knowing David Duke and continually calling Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas. And then there was this time when he said this. Uh, Look at my African-American over here. Look at him. Are you the greatest? Him? When I realized I wasn't Donald's African-American, well, that's when the questions in my mind really grew into a slightly strong suspicion. And I vowed right then that I would only serve another five months on the campaign, get a job on staff, and work for a year or so. This is me, Mike, now I'm transitioning out of the Omarosa mindset, and I will just advise you this, America, please buy Omarosa's book. She seems like a clear voice, a reliable narrator, and a person who badly, if not desperately needs the attention. If this ends in anything other than her getting her own reality show, I'll eat my words, and you know I'm not joking. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. Like comic strip stalwart Kathy consumed chocolate, Daniel consumes raw wisdom, making him a sage phage Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, eats up all the offerings of one of America's bright young hip-hop artists. He's a major laser-phager. The gist. Can't get enough of the last track of Arcade Fire's 2007 LP, Neon Bible. I'm a real... My body is a cage of phage, and Peter Gabriel is late to this feast. Oomperoo Duperu, and thanks for listening.